Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... I'm talking to foreign affairs journalist Tim Marshall about two of his books. Prisoners of Geography, 10 maps that tell you everything you need to know about global politics and Worth Dying For, The Power and Politics of Flags. Tim Marshall is a leading authority on foreign affairs with more than 25 years of reporting experience. He was diplomatic editor at Sky News and before that has worked for the BBC and LBC IRN Radio. He has reported from 40 countries and covered conflicts in Croatia, Bosnia, Macedonia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria and Israel. He is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller Prisoners of Geography, 10 maps that tell you everything you need to know about global politics. And his latest book is Worth Dying For, The Power and Politics of Flags. And today we're going to talk about both books. Tim, welcome to the Latin. Thank you for the invitation. Prisoners of Geography, first of all, what's the idea behind the book? Basic idea is is that I always felt when reporting that one of the missing elements of the context of a story was the geography of the story. It's old-fashioned that geography is a determining factor, and that's all I argue. It's a determining factor in history, is with the other determining factors of disease, leaders, ideas, famine, etc. And so <clears throat> I thought I would inject into uh, the discourse. Uh, geography back into it to try and get it back into fashion, get putting the geo back into geopolitics. And so if you want to understand a country and the decisions that it makes, part of that, you look at the geography of the country. A really good example of that would be Russia, yeah. um, which you start with. And I think it's particularly timely that we Sorry. talk about Russia, what with the, the ascent of Donald Trump, it would seem that Putin's going to get basically a, a, an open hand to do what he likes now. So how does, how does its geography, how has Russia's geography sort of dictated its policy right through, really, right back from the Tsars all the way up through communism to now? And, at a stretch, made it a prisoner of its environment. This is why I put it in, in the first chapter, because I find it the most compelling and easy-to-understand evidence. If your ports freeze many months of the year, as Russia's do in the Arctic Circle, you haven't got a 365-day-a-year navy. So you will always seek to have a warm water port. When you look at the map, the only one they've got is in Crimea. So that is an existential piece of uh, real estate for them. Further, if, and I worked it out, if over the past uh, 250 years you have been invaded once every 35, 36 years from the West through flat ground, what are you going to do? You haven't got a choice. You will seek to dominate that flat ground in front of you. And if it happens to be called Ukraine or Poland, so be it. I mean, it's a bit unfortunate for the Ukrainians and the Poles. But nevertheless, any Russian leader of any stripe will always look westward, know their history, and feel that they need to put a buffer between them and the other people. Now, the fact that in the modern world I don't think we're a threat to them, I don't think there's any aggression towards them, isn't the point. The point is that from the Russian perspective, geographically, they will feel that threat. And as I said, that means that you know now, because you know Putin and Trump are friends, there's obviously already been, for the past few years, been sort of trouble bubbling under in, in the Ukraine. Yeah. 
obviously, you know, you just mentioned the Crimea, but of course Crimea is wasn't I was gonna say isn't wasn't Russia's, hasn't been for a while. Mm. And of course, you know, they have already taken that back. So where next? Well, the reason it wasn't Russia is because Khrushchev gave it to the Republic of Ukraine, which was part of the USSR, which, of course, Moscow controlled. They never realised that Soviet man would die. And then it was left in Ukraine on on lease to them. And as I said, once Ukraine flipped, they just said, I don't have a choice. I'm going to take that. Wrongly, because it was, you know, crossing into a sovereign state and um, seizing part of it. Okay, so next... There's a number of places you can push. The most obvious one is the Baltic states. The Russian psyche says that that is their, at best, worst rather, near abroad, what they call their near abroad. They believe it's part of the Russian sphere of influence. Or if you're really a near-redentist nationalist, you will say actually that is part of what should be Russia. Because lots of parts of the Baltic states are Russian-speaking. And not everybody has been too helpful. Newt Gingrich, I think it was, a few months ago described, um, I think it was Estonia, as in the suburbs of St. Petersburg, which is pretty unhelpful if you don't want the Russians to come and visit. You either uh, believe in NATO and the fact that we are in alliance with like-minded societies that have voted in their governments that have made decisions and you stand up against aggression, or you don't. And as they are in the club, uh, you need to care about them. I mean, to be blunt, thank goodness Ukraine isn't in NATO, otherwise we would have had to fight and if we hadn't fought for it, you might as well disband NATO, and all bets are off at that point. We're talking about, you know, Russia, all the, the sort of history that we're talking about here is all like in the European part of Russia, mm. sort of the west of Russia, and all of those countries. I was, I was going to you know, mention earlier, all of those sort of Eastern European countries. I guess we, we often think, although communism was like, you know, communism collapsed, we don't necessarily think of it in terms of it being like defeated as such, but a good sort of way... Of illustrating that is, you mentioned in the book that every single country that used yeah. to be part of the Warsaw Pact, apart from Russia, is now part of NATO, which is a pretty, you know, a, a pretty resounding defeat for it. But of course, you know, Russia's not just the European part mm-hmm. around around the West. The vast majority of it faces east. So, does it also face any threats from the east? Well, far fewer. I mean, certainly from the north, there's no threat coming from the Arctic. I mean, Russia is so big, 11 time zones. By the time you get to the Urals, and once you cross them, you're into Asia, uh, you've only gone less than, I think it's less than a third of the way into Russia. So there's obviously no threat from the Urals all the way uh, almost to Alaska. The threat potentially could come from where it used to, which is slightly to the south, to the south. Because the Mongols used to uh, invade Russia, but they, they didn't come up through Siberia. They used to come up along Kazakhstan and, and um, through the soft underbelly of Russia. They've plugged that gap, and so there really isn't much of a, a threat to them anywhere, except in their minds from the West. I mean, the Chinese are not a threat to the Russians. There's a lot of space between any building in China and any building in Russia. You know, you've got the Gobi Desert, for example. You know, you go, you're, gonna, you're not going to amass an army in the Gobi Desert and then invade one way or the other because you'll have to give the people three months' notice and it's flat ground and you can defend it. So, no, it, in the Russian mind, it is the West that is problematic. And the other thing that you've already mentioned, the idea of the frozen the ports being frozen for like a, a huge period of the year, but also, even without the, the freezing issue, mm. Russia's in this sort of unique position where whether or not it's the Crimea or whether or not it's, um, uh, what's the one, Mamansk, yeah, yeah. the Russian fleet has a long way to go before yeah. it can really get anywhere. Either it's got to come through the Mediterranean or through Suez, yeah. all the way down to, you know, to the Straits of Gibraltar, or it's got to come down past the UK on either side of the UK. It's in this sort of like weird position where it, it doesn't really have any access that's to right. the open ocean. And, and that's pretty rare for a great power, and they were a great power, but they, they never had access to the great sea lanes of the world, and it always dominated their policy. You can go back five, six hundred years, and they were still trying, well, 300 years, and they were still trying to come through the stands, down through Afghanistan into Pakistan to get a warm water port. That's, I think, why they invaded Afghanistan in the 70s. So if you look at it, again, from the geographic perspective and you see the influence on politics, to get to the great sea lanes and to be a trading nation and to have a a 365-day navy, they've got to come out of the Arctic and, as you said, down past the British Isles 
or come through the Baltic Sea, which now is controlled by mostly NATO nations, and even then through a very narrow strait out past Denmark, or fine, we'll come out of the Black Sea port of Crimea, the only warm water port. You've still got to get through the Bosphorus, a mile wide. Turkey is a NATO nation. Even then you're only in uh, the Med, uh, well, the Adriatic, the Med, going past more NATO countries, through the Straits of Gibraltar, and only at that point you're in the Atlantic. So from their perspective, you know, they don't have freedom of movement. Let's move on to the USA then. And, and the USA is like completely the opposite. It's sort of singularly blessed with yes. possibly the best location in the world for an empire to grow it. So how much did the geography actually play a part in that? Uh, well, almost 100%, because once they had gone from sea to shining sea, the whole 3,000 miles, they were a two-ocean power, a natural two-ocean power. Not Well, I mean, it was through a form of colonialism, you know, that they, they took the country from the original inhabitants. But it wasn't a sort of colonisation like Britain or France or other countries did. So they spread across, and once they'd reached the Pacific, they were a two-nation power. And at that point... Actually, from pretty much the Louisiana Purchase, but certainly once they reached the coast, at that point they're the only two ocean power in the world with the ability to project both ways, both force projecting both ways, and trade projecting both ways. And then in between these two oceans, you've got this fantastic fertile land with navigable rivers in which you can build the most successful rich nation that's ever been seen on the face of the planet. And like the Mississippi, for instance, which is, you know. Basically, the, the the US is navigable right in the middle, pretty much up, right up to Chicago. And how weird is, is that? Yeah. Well, that's, you see, that's the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, yeah. most of us think the Louisiana Purchase is purchasing Louisiana, but it's in fact pretty much the whole Mississippi Basin, which is very broad brush, all the way from the Appalachian Mountains right across to the Rocky Mountains uh, above Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's, you know, that's a sort of bigger than Western Europe that they bought in one fell swoop. Well, I want to move us off America onto Western Europe because, again, Western Europe has these you know long navigable rivers that yeah. also happen to form. Obviously, you know the United States is is one contiguous country. The West Europe is is you know roughly a similar size, but lots and lots of different nations. But they all have really well defined borders. Yes, I mean that's partly geographic and partly that from history, the different peoples, who were up to a point boxed in. I mean, for example, there's a reason why people on one side of a mountain speak one language, let's say Spanish, and speak another language on the other side, let's say French. It's because that mountain divided them and they grew up differently. Whereas the Americans, it was one sort of monoculture that spread across the entire piece of land, whereas in Europe it grew up uh, organically. That said... That explains partially the nation-states, as do the rivers, which are natural barriers. And so the different cultures grew up along with uh, side these natural barriers. And, and, and those divisions, which have divided us geographically, still divide us uh, linguistically, uh, partially politically, not particularly, but certainly how we think about the world. Uh, for example, I think people underestimate that little strip of water between France and Britain. I think it has a massive psychological effect on us. Uh, it is why it's one of the reasons we did not suffer as badly as the continental Europeans did during World War Two, and consequently, we I think in our collective memory, we 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 see this as as a barrier to the extremes that have gone on in Europe. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that is a direct correlation between the Brexit vote, but I think it plays a role in our national psyche. I'm Emma Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. China, so China is, is always put forward as being you know, the next world power, mm-hmm. it's going to rise and become the next superpower. How much does its geography restrict or, um, or encourage that? It used to restrict it, and it was so poor, uh, in, especially in, in, in its hinterland, 
and it was uh, underpowered, so to speak, and consequently foreigners could come to its shoreline and control it. That has changed uh, as it's become richer and the Communist Party gripped it. And then the Communist Party essentially built barriers, uh, buffer zones, I should say, because the natural habitat of the vast majority of China is the, the plains around, let's say, from Shanghai all the way up to Beijing. There's a, a large area, maybe only less than half of China, I would say. That's where the Han come from, and the Han are 90% of the population. But the Han moved out into Manchuria, up to the Gobi Desert and border Mongolia, right out into uh, the Muslim areas, which border Kazakhstan, all the way into Tibet. And consequently, have got this huge buffer zone around the central area where the Han are, and so there's nobody coming to threaten them from that area. And then the threat from the sea has now disappeared because they have built this modern um, nation which now has the ability to defend itself and um, looks like it will reach parity with the one remaining superpower sometime around the middle of this century, unless things go wrong. And you talk about the... It's never really occurred to me this, but like you know, they, they have this like huge long border with India, mm. and yet there's never really been particular strife between yeah. India and, and how China. Often, how often in history do you get two very large powers yeah. facing against each other, different cultures that have not actually come to blows? Now, apart from an artillery duel they fought in the last 50 years sometime, they haven't fought, and that's because there's this massive wall between them called the Himalayas. And you can't get armoured columns through there, you can't get... Well, you can't fight your way through the Himalayas, it's just too tough territory. Now, they could fight at sea, but they've always looked elsewhere. They've realised, I've got this massive wall behind me, it's a defensive wall. I don't need to bother about that lot over there. One of the reasons the Chinese control Tibet is that they do worry that if they didn't, the Indians would control Tibet. And they don't want the Indians having the high ground. And they don't want the Indians looking onto the high ground where the, most of their rivers flow from. So that's another re- a geographic reason why they thought we must take this area. But no, they've never looked at each other uh, and constantly planned ahead. And their military posture and structure is never aimed at each other because there's a great wall between them. And the Tibet thing is it's particularly interesting because there has never really been any discernible threat that India would actually try to take control of those rivers, is there? No, they haven't. But again, um, it's an existential thing for the Chinese. It's where their water comes from. They're not going to let anybody else uh, take the high ground uh, with the potential of threatening it. It's an uh, existential threat. And I'm afraid that nations... There are these these... For me, absolute givens that if anything threatens it, they will fight for it. And everybody knows that, that knows this stuff. And so no one's going to threaten the Chinese water source because water is, it is a cause of war. And um, it's too hard to get to. I mean, look, the the, the Syrians and the uh, Turks nearly fought a war in the 70s over the the headway of the headwaters of the Euphrates. Um, They didn't. Uh, Ethiopia and Egypt um, have very tense relations because of the, who controls the headway and the flow of the Nile, which of course goes up into, into Egypt. It's, it's existential stuff. It's, it's not national pride, it's national survival. Well, that very thing is going on as we speak, yeah. isn't it? In that there's a, you know, there's a project to dam the. Uh, That's right. They, the they, they, there was a, the Egyptians' cabinet, uh, they were doing that sort of photo call where everybody grins and grips, and, and then the cameras are supposed to go, and the cameras did go. But there was one that didn't and was left recording, and it was live, and it caught the defence minister of Egypt. It was only in the last two or three years saying, look, we really ought to bomb them now. Why wait for 10 years when well, we might have to bomb them later? Let's bomb them now before they build the dam. And oh my God, this caused a bit of a stir. So that was, you could tell that there was a strain of thought in Egyptian government and military thinking about what to do about this potential threat of the dam. Happily, they've got round a table and mostly sorted out the details of how much water and how big a dam and... You know, because you, you've got to learn to share. You learn it in the kindergarten, and it's the same at international level. I want to move us on to Africa. Well, we're in Africa, actually, where we are right now, so we'll stay in Africa, I should say. You know, apart from, you know, there's been, a, obviously, you know, Egypt, once upon a time, and, you know, greater Zimbabwe, and there's been, like, mm-hmm. sort of various little sort of flowerings of power in Africa, but it's never been, a, a you know, a power on the world stage. There's many reasons for that, and we'll talk in a moment about the sort of the mark of imperialism on Africa, 
But like more specifically, in terms of geography, what sort of things have, in the geography of Africa have prevented it becoming a world power? Here I'm, I must pay tribute to Jared Diamond, the writer, and, and his book, Guns, Germs and Steel, which is a fantastic book. Very deterministic, um, certainly was an influence on, on my thinking. So, I, I, you know, what I'm about to say is actually mostly learned from Jared Diamond. If you cannot have beasts of burden, donkeys and horses, working for you in large parts of, your, of the, the continent, which is true of certainly the middle third because the tetsi fly kills them and they fall over, and you try putting uh, your, your, your crops onto the back of a rhinoceros and transporting it anyway, it's not going to work. There's one thing. We talked about Europe, the Danube River Basin, long, wide, flat rivers. Grow your crops, stick them on a barge, send them down the river, sell them. Great. Africa, grow your crops, stick them on a barge, send them down a river, and ten miles later you go over a waterfall. So they're, they're just not, they, they were not as connected. Another reason, you've got the Sahel and then you've got the Sahara. 2,000 miles without water. Now, a lot of the ideas that we learn, we learn a lot from the Chinese, the ideas travelled east, west, west, east. But until the last more than a half thousand years, probably even only about a thousand years, the ideas could not penetrate down south through that geographic buffer, nor could they travel up. You know, and there was this empire of Zimbabwe, the Great Zimbabwe Walls, and the, there was the, the Malian Empire. But the ideas and the thoughts and what, anything that they were doing just, just didn't, didn't connect. And so, despite even without colonialism, um, they were at a disadvantage. Now, technology is bending the bars of the prison that I talk about because technology is allowing Africa to overcome that. And you, you go to a, an Africa, so many, many African cities at night now, and you know it's like looking at Tokyo or Seoul or London or Paris. And um, when you look at a map of Africa, I mean, first of all, you know, another, you know, one of the one of the things talking about the map a bit, one of the things that you know has prevented trade across Africa is the sheer size of it. We often mm. look at the map and the projection shows it as as a lot smaller than it actually is. But also, when you look at a map of Africa, loads of the countries have got these like ridiculously straight borders that have yeah. just been, you know, they were just drawn on a map once upon a time by some colonial administrator. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the effect that that imposing those borders had on the, had on the continent. Yeah, it, it's, it's held them back because it's difficult language, but they were, some of them, artificial states. They were not created from natural geographic boundaries and natural linguistic territories. They were just thrown together. And sometimes they were thrown together because that's as far as this army got and that's as far as that trading post got, which is not a good foundation for building a cohesive nation-state society. And so that has been extraordinarily problematic. And so you, A, you're stand, starting off from this rather negative position geographically, and then on top of that, you get these artificial boundaries. Now, when you look at it in that perspective, some of those countries have made a, a pretty good fist of it. Botswana, uh, Ghana, perhaps, you could argue, um, and other, others have just never got off the ground. Um, Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, just never got going. And, um, I mean, DRC, there's about six million people have been killed in, in the wars there in the last 30 years. You know, it's, it's, it's hidden, it's a hidden conflict, but more people have died there than have died in the Syrian conflict, for example. And you talk particularly about the Democratic Republic of Congo, the, the ironically named Democratic yeah, Republic well, of Congo. In, not in democratic and not really a republic. Yeah. Obviously, we were talking about, you know, we've just been talking about the, the, these borders being imposed just, just on the map by some administrator. We could say the same thing about the whole of the Middle East, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but just to finish off this section, just, we'll just talk about one more thing and then we'll, we'll move on to worth dying for. In terms of the Middle East, I'd like particularly to talk about ISIS, not a country, not yet, but you know, a, a organisation that wants Caliphate, to... which yeah. which is a form of... Well, it's not a nation-state because they don't believe in yeah. nation-states, but it's certainly a defined territory which is controlled by one group, yeah. And they've done it. That's their genius, and that's why they are the poster at the moment. They're, they're going to lose. But that's why they're the poster boy ahead of AQ, because Al-Qaeda never achieved territory. They only achieved destruction. Mm -hmm. But you do talk quite hopefully in this book about the fact that actually geography might be something that's against them in terms of them, them being a success. Yes, um, look at the, where they're situated. Um, there's flat ground. The moment they're chased out of the cities, they're sitting ducks, which is 
partially happening in uh, Mosul, Raqqa is about to happen, they've been kicked out of Fallujah. When, once you're out in the desert, they're sitting ducks, which is why they take women and children with them in their convoys as, as human shields. But also, since uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of um, 1916, when the French and the British divvied up the territory, then they achieved independence, there has been a degree of sense of nationhood. Now, it fell apart at the first time of asking in Iraq. I mean, we cracked it open, and it fell into its constituents, parts of the Kurds at the north, the very broad brush, Sunni Arab Muslims in the middle, Shia Arab Muslims down south, and it cracked almost straight away. Nevertheless, there is still an idea of Iraq, and the Iraqis that don't support ISIS, which is most of them, are thinking, well, who the hell are this lot from Chechnya? from Pakistan, from Sudan, yeah, and from Iraq, and from Jordan. Who the hell are these guys to come over here and tell us that they're creating a caliphate? No, this is my area, and we're going to control it. So it's actually the colonial borders, in a way, militate against the ISIS idea of doing away with all these borders. ISIS drove a bulldozer through a sand berm, uh, which demarked the border between uh, Syria and Iraq. And I found it as an amazing piece of footage because they actually say we are driving through Sykes-Picot. And, and what that, you know, that's broad brush for we are dismantling those ideas from the previous century. But they're losing and they're going to lose. But their idea is a long way from being defeated. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Tim Marshall. We've been talking in the first part of the show about his book, Prisoners of Geography. And now we're going to talk about Worth Dying For, The Power and Politics of Flags. So this book, Tim, you look at some of the same countries that we've just been yeah. talking about in the, in the first half, but this time through the symbolism of a, of a national symbol. Um, it's not always a national flag in the book, no. but uh, we'll talk about some of the national flags first of all. So why why this book? 
In some ways, it's a continuation of Prisoners of Geography, but I mean, I mean, it's a very different book because it's it's much more about identity. But in the sense that it's a continuation, is that geography defined why certain nation states arose, you know. And I know that from this river to that river, that's where we live, and we speak this language, and we eat this food. So that was a determining factor. And of course, growing from that over the past few centuries has been these symbols of this identity: the Union flag for. Great Britain, for example. And I, I think identity politics, sadly, is, is front and centre, backwards, nationalism. I mean, it never really went away, but it was quietened and dampened down. And when we had a lot of money in the Western democracies, we could spread the sunshine around, and people were less concerned about identity. 2008, I'm afraid, has taken a lid off that. Things aren't don't appear to be working as well as they used to, and people are going... Some people are drifting to the extremes. Immigration has caused um, something of an identity crisis, and we're in the middle of it. So I wanted to look at what are these symbols, where do they come from, why do they mean what they mean to us, um, why are they so important, and why would some people actually die for them? I mean, they would. They, people. I, mean, I know the old thing, which is true, that you fight mostly for the guy next to you, and the guy on the other side of you. That is a true cliché that nearly everybody in the military says. Simultaneously, you join for a reason. You often fight and believe in what you're doing for a reason. And clearly, many people, whether it's ISIS or the US Marines, and I'm not conflating the two, think things are worth dying for. Well, I mean, that's interesting. We'll get, we'll, we're going to, again, finish up on ISIS in, in this second part of the interview. But we'll start with... Um... Not necessarily the United States Marines, but the United States. I, I have an American partner. I spend a lot of time over there. I never got used to the absolute ubiquity of the flag on every building, every house, everywhere you go. In a lot of ways, I, I find that really attractive. I do find it not like, I mean, perhaps things are going to change now. I think with uh, President Trump, things might have a different feel to them. But... um. Yeah, perhaps it might take on a more nationalist feeling, but but the idea that everybody is so attached to that symbol is something that I don't feel in any way when I see our own flag, mm-hmm. for instance. What is it about the Stars and Stripes that attracts people to it? It is supposed to symbolise freedom and democracy. Uh, now, obviously, it's problematic at times. Um, you know, no, whoever lives up to the expectations or what they would like themselves to be, nobody and no nation. Nevertheless, the idea is there of freedom, and it's there in the 13 stripes, which represent the 13 original colonies and then newly formed states that came together, kicked out the Brits. I mean, let's face it, kicked out a, a colonial power uh, ruled by a king. So it does stand for freedom, and each of the stars stand for each of the states. So every time they see it, subliminally, they are looking at a symbol of freedom. Um, then comes the Christian element in it, that they are the um, city on the, on the hill, the shining city on, on the hill. Then every nation likes to think of itself as um, on the side of the angels. The Russians certainly do. Uh, the British long been a force for good in the world. The French, I mean, everybody does. And the Americans really, really do. And, of course, they can point at lots and lots of things which actually prove that. They have spread democracy. They have spread freedom. They have spread all sorts of things. Yeah, there was the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Yes, there's racism. The Klu- you know, there's, there's all these list of negatives. But when you're looking at your nation state, most people don't look at the long list of negatives. And so this flag means so much to them. And not just white middle-class Americans. Yeah, when, I, when I lived in America, uh, I knew a lot of black Americans that were very patriotic, many of whom had served in the armed forces. Now, again, it's more problematic if you're from an ethnic minority. Uh, and I think, was it Farrakhan um, or Martin uh, Malcolm X? One of them said, it's not the American dream for us, it's the American nightmare. And I do understand where that comes from. Nevertheless, the vast majority of Americans feel very strongly about their country and their flag. But we can, if we, if we talk about the Confederate flag for a moment, which you know, you, certain people display proudly as well mm. over there, you can see how very, very simply that sort of idea of, of a sort of nationalism attached to a symbol can, can sort yeah. of slide. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Confederate flag um, 
for, to, to some eyes, is, is a very oppressive extreme right-wing flag because it has been hijacked by that and it has become symbolic not just of southern culture and fried chicken and good old boys. I'm afraid it, you know, it, it, it has these unfortunate uh, overtones now. And I didn't realise this when I started doing the research that in fact it was the Confederate flag was just one of several battle flags used by the Southern forces, the Confederacy in the Civil War. And then after the war, um, it was one that was frequently used at, at gatherings of, of veterans. It didn't stand for pro-slavery race. It, it stood for, yeah, you know, this, this was the war that we went through. Um, and it was only picked up as late as the 1940s by uh, the Ku Klux Klan and nationalist groups who started flying it, and then it began to change into this flag that meant something much darker as well. I, I looked, I watched the film um, Birth of a Nation, huge, hugely influential film in America, black and white silent movie, uh, I think from around about 1910, Birth of a Nation, and there's so many scenes with the Ku Klux Klan in it. It's a very racist film, don't get me wrong, and it, and it actually says the, it suggests the Ku Klux Klan. They're the heroes yeah. of the film. But it's still worth a watch. And there's, there's, not, there's no Confederate flags in it at all. Not in the Civil War scenes and not in the Ku Klux Klan scenes. You know, it, this was really surprised me that it only actually really accelerated into consciousness in the, in the 1940s. The flag itself, the, um, you know, the Stars and Stripes, Old Glory, obviously that, its current incarnation is relatively recent. It's been through numerous incarnations, hasn't it? I mean, obviously, that hasn't always been 50 states. Yeah, every time, every time there's a new... Uh, I mean, originally, they were going to add a new strike for each state, but it was going to look ridiculous. So they kicked that idea into touch, and they went with a new star each time. Um, and the, the, the basic one we see now... Sorry, the, the one we see now is pretty much the one they decided on at the beginning. It, it's had a few iterations, and obviously, each time there's a new state, there's, there's a new star. Also, there's, in the flag code, the, the, most countries have a flag code. America has a slightly longer one than some countries. It doesn't actually stipulate which way up to hang it, and that's why you sometimes see the stars and stripes uh, not uh, as an oblong. Uh, it's, sort of, you sort of see, it's tilted round, and the stars are... Uh, well, you know what I mean. It's, you often see it draped over instead of flying horizontally. Moving on to the, to the Union Jack, which I, I've already mentioned, certainly I don't, I don't feel as much of an attachment to it. I think, you know, I guess you explain that in that, you know, Americans do look at the Stars and Stripes and think of it as a, a flag that represents freedom and ideas of freedom and democracy, and nobody looks at the Union Jack and thinks that, do they? I, I don't think most of us think about it because, yeah, it's not such a big thing in our lives. Um, I'm not so sure that everyone agrees with you. Um, and I don't just mean the BNP types of this world. There is a residual affection towards the flag, uh, excuse me, especially once you leave um, middle-class liberal London. There has been decades of being slightly embarrassed about it. There's decades, uh, certainly when the far right... Uh, partially appropriated it, and the Cross of St. George. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll move on to the home nation yeah. flag. But, 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 and I think that those thinking people are embarrassed about it and have written about it and don't celebrate it. But I think once you move outside of, of that fairly small village, there, there most people in the country uh, are quietly, I don't know about proud of it, the way the Americans are proud of it, but I don't think they have the anxiety about it that liberal metropolitan Londoners. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, the, for, even for myself, you know, firmly couched in liberal metropolitan London. God bless you. The, um, the, the Union Jack has, you know, none of the residences that seeing the, uh, the, cross, of, the cross of St George does, mm. um, which is odd because clearly Scottish people do not feel the same about, you know, the St Andrew Cross. No, I mean... You know, you'll find a lot more people in Scotland that will will their first choice would be the Saltire, yeah, second second if at all <laughs> the Union Jack. I'm the other way around. I'm, I'm from the north, and and I think a lot of people my age in the north we grew up British first, English second. I mean, that's still how I feel. And, and I, when I look at that flag, I, I do feel an affinity uh, with the people in the in the other parts uh, of the nation state. Uh, I really, I really do feel that we are all connected, and that flag actually does join us. And I know the flag's problematic. I know there are people in 
Ireland that will call it the butcher's apron because of you know our bloody past. And again, you know, I get that, but no country's perfect, and we all have a rather starry. Many of us have a rather starry-eyed view of our our country. Uh, John Lydon, Johnny Rotten almost had it right in the Sex Pistols when he said, uh, just another country. I mean, we're not. Neither is Sweden. Neither, neither are the countries that have given amazing things to the world and done amazing things, as well as doing lots of dodgy things. But it's not just another country. Andrew Muller, check out the growing Little Atoms media empire at littleatoms.com. One flag, if indeed it really is a flag, and perhaps we can discuss that in a moment, which hasn't in any way attracted as much affection, even even before we, you know, we're talking here. You know, I presume the vast majority of this of this book was written before uh, before Brexit. The Euro flag, the flag of, of the European Union is not a flag that's really anybody's taken it to their heart. No, it isn't. I mean, luckily, I was just finishing off when the vote came and um, was able to rewrite several passages to, to reflect it. No, the, the, many of us have the European ideal. You know, we, we like Europe and we like our Chianti and we like the Spanish language and we admire German... You know, there is this affinity and there is this brotherhood but, push comes to shove, most people do not feel European first. Many people don't feel any affinity to that 12 stars. And again, I, I get a lot of pushback and I understand that when, when I deliberately throw a grenade into a conversation and say, just as you got it wrong about Brexit and you were talking in an echo chamber to each other about how we belonged here and then there was going to be, we weren't going to leave. Now, I find the same people talking to each other about how embarrassing that is they also go off on their skiing holidays to wherever people go skiing or I, I talk to people in the city that go off to their meetings in, in Brussels and Madrid and Milan and they say oh it was so embarrassing you know they were saying oh, how could you do this as if we are not where actually millions and millions of Europeans are 44% of the Italians want to leave the Union up in the 40% of the French want... What, are they little Frenchies and little Italians who are anti-European? No, they're just... They've realised things aren't working as much as they should. I voted in. I like the European Union. I'd like to see it reformed. But I don't let that blind me to the fact that the, seven, the 60 years of the EU and the coming together of the European tribes after the shock of World War II has not got rid of the nationalism in every single one of the countries. Let me go slightly off subject. The communists stamped on Christianity in Russia, closed the churches, padlocked them, arrested the priests, absolutely stamped on it for 70 years. And within a few weeks of communism falling, the church just went back, right across the 11 time zones. People flooded into the churches. Now the patriarchs are up there in the hierarchy talking to the major politicians and business and all the rest of it. 70 years of that ideology hardly put a dent. And the, what I'm arguing is that 60 years of the European Union has not actually put as much of a dent as the true believers think it has in the nation-state identities, for better or worse. What was that flag ever supposed to represent? And obviously all of these nations, obviously including our own, have their own national flags. Yeah. And we'll go on in a moment to talk about some of the European flags. And a lot of countries in Europe, probably most countries in Europe, have you know, probably more affinity with their, with their national flags because of, you know, the, a lot of these nations are actually, you know, quite recent or the flags are quite recent. So there's... Or very, or conversely, very ancient, the oldest nation-state flag is supposed to be the Danborough, the Danish flag, and, and they are very, very into their flag. Sorry, I interrupted. But, the, the, you know, the, the European flag, what was it even for? Well, it, it says unity, as all circles do. 
Um, but again, I didn't know this until I did the research. The European Union flag is actually the Council of Europe's flag. And the Council of Europe precedes the European Union. And the Council of Europe was 48 nations that came together and they wanted a symbol. Light blue, the UN had got. Red, the communists had got. Green, Islam, etc., etc. Okay, so they'll go for the blue background. And the stars originally were going to be, I think, up, was it 15? Uh, because there was at the, at the very beginning of it, there was only 15 members of the Council of Europe. And there was a problem that one of them was uh, the Tsarland, which was an indeterminate status, was yet to be determined. And of course, the Germans said, no way, you can put a star up there to represent Tsarland, because of course they wanted it back. So that made 14. The Tsarland said, we're not going to be taken out of this. The French had a problem with it as well, and they agreed on 13. The Italians said 13 is unlucky. That left 12 stars, which they all agreed on. When along comes the EU in the early 80s, when it transformed from the EEC, they wanted a flag at this point, and they simply copied and pasted that original flag. I mean, such, such trivialities is deeply historic. That's why we've got 12 stars. So I said I want to talk about some of the flags of your... I immediately think of the you know the French flag and the revolution and what that flag means to the French and you know they call it you know the tricolor. Yeah. Actually, the vast majority of flags in Europe are also tricolor. Yeah, but if you well. say the tricolor, yeah. most of us know. Oh, yeah, we're talking about the French flag. There is a law, not a law. There is a guide to flag flag making. Talk to the Flag Institute of Britain, one of the world's leading vexillologists, and the guides always say keep it simple. And so, you know, you start putting loads of colours in, it, it gets messy. South African flag's a pretty good-looking flag and quite unusual in, in the amount of colours it has. But mostly, no, stick to maximum, maximum three colours and be sparing with... and don't put any writing on them. So I think they just grew up organically. The other way they grew up, and this is also organically, is that it goes all the way back to the Crusades when nobody knew who the hell was who. So... Over there, the Germanic tribes would have a red flag, and over there, the, and then the barbarians from the Anglo-Saxon island, pretty early on, had a white flag with a red cross on it. And so, when they came back home, they became part of the culture. Of course, they weren't nation-states in those days, but the colours were then planted into uh, the cultures. And then, let's say, another part matches into another part, and they had a a white flag, well now you've got a red and white which has come together then you've got the legends that are introduced the Austrian flag is because some Austrian prince was fighting away somewhere and his white tunic was soaked in blood top and bottom, but when he took his belt off after the day of a hard slaying there was a white strip in the middle, that is why the Austrian flag is red and white, you know, so there's all that stuff that has gone in but you, you want to keep it simple, two or three colours. So the German flag, I only learned from reading your book, used to be a tricolour as well. It used to be three colours, but not the German flag that we know now. No, I mean, there, were, there, were, there was the black and the red, which appealed to Bismarck, and he stuck that in. And then the Weimar Republic, the first proper democracy, changed it more or less to the one we know now. Hitler comes along, and of course he's not going to have anything to do with that democracy nonsense, and he switched back to the original black, uh, red and gold. And then he actually did away with the German flag altogether and made the Nazi flag the flag of the state. So of course when that's over, you're not going to go back to that black and red, because that was Bismarckian, Hitlerian. And so they went back to one much more akin to uh, the Wehrmacht years and that's the one we now know and the East Germans went the same way so there wasn't too much of a problem when they unified again in uh, in the 90s early 90s and you mentioned Denmark all of the Scandinavian flags are they all have the crosses yeah the the uh, Scandinavian crosses it's known the elongated you know the, the, the cross but the right hand of the cross elongates to the end of the flag it's it's just a shared culture and also it, Iceland at one point belonged to one of them. Norway was controlled by one of them, and then Switzerland was controlled by a different one of them. And so they they grew up having, I mean, they're different colours, but the, the cross is exactly the same shape. And then I think Finland just said, well, we're a Scandinavian country as well. Uh, we'll, we'll go with this. 
And we'll add to it one more trickler, actually. The Russian flag mm. is now, again, three colours. Obviously, that's replaced uh, you know, the red flag, the hammer and sickle. Where does that? Where do those three colours come from? Why is the Russian flag as it is? Um, you'll forgive me for forgetting some of the detail. What I can tell you is that they are pan-Slavic colours. You will find them in places like the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. Slovenia, Serbia. Um, they all, they've all gone for those. And, and it goes back to um, the shared Slavic history and um, the, the original ideas of, of the Russians. The trickler itself is because, was it Frederick the Great? One of the great Russian leaders from the 19th century who travelled over to um, Western Europe, looked at all these relatively new nation states, and they all had a trickler flag representing them. He thought, all right, I'll have one of those. But, and the colours themselves, for reasons that I'll have to dive back into the book, I'm afraid, um, represent the pan-Slavic idea. Well, I was going to move on to, to the Balkans. Obviously, the, the Yugoslav flag used to be the, you know, yeah. the red, white and blue, yeah. trickler, horizontal stripes. Um, now, all of the Baltic nations have got some sort of variation on a similar thing, even if the, you know, the Croatian flag is you know, very different, still uses that same sort of idea. So, I guess, how do you know, when a new nation needs to needs to give itself a flag as part of its sort of putative identity as a nation. Obviously, all of those all of those places are not really new nations, but, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, those um, ethnic groupings go back, you know, centuries. But when you when you Kosovo or somewhere like that is, wants to start off on, yeah. on a new nation, you know, they get themselves a national anthem. Talked about that on a previous Little Atoms. Now you've got to get yourself a flag. What do you do? You put it out to tender, usually, and you get loads and loads of incredibly stupid ideas. And then you get some that just hit the mark. Or you compromise. I mean, the Bosnian flag is a bit of a compromise because the Dayton Peace Agreement to end the Bosnian War was a compromise. And I'm afraid Bosnia hasn't really knitted itself together. And the three constituent parts still... I don't think many people look at the Bosnian flag and um, would run into gunfire for it. So that was a bit of a, a bit of a compromise. Um, the Kosovan flag, I th- there's something about the topography of Kosovo in there. Um, I think a better example, though, uh, quickly, two good examples. When the Arab nation-states began to get flags, they harked back to the uh, Arab flag of uh, unity and rev- Arab flag of revolt, and they put in the three great colours of the three Islamic dynasties, like the Fatimids, uh, and that spoke to most of the Arabs across, and then they all borrowed from that flag. And the, those colours were there because that was in their culture. And then the other example, a very new one, is South Africa, where the guy that came up with the winning design, I interviewed him for the book actually, a lovely fella, he felt strongly that you had to include all the constituent parts. So you had to include the Zulus, the ANC, but you also had to include the Dutch. And that's why there's some orange in it. Because if you don't put any orange at all, well, what about all the, the, the Afrikaans who live in this country and are now part of this rainbow nation? So he created a rainbow flag for a rainbow nation. And the colours speak to the constituent parts. And then the, the little bit on the left-hand side pulls them all together. So you, you simply sit down and you think, right, what presses the emotional buttons? What represents everybody? How do we put it together? And then you try and sell it. Because it is actually an idea. You know, a flag speaks, and it has to speak to everybody. And not all flags do, and they're very problematic, the ones that exclude certain groups. A great example is our own. Mm-hmm. Where's the Welsh? Um, well, you just, I wanted to talk about the um, Arabic flags, and you just give an explanation as to the, uh, you know, the common colours, and yeah. they often have the same symbol. A lot of them also... If you don't have Arabic, perhaps you know you could you could say they all look the same. But there's yeah. a lot of these. But, flags... but that's the point, isn't it? They all look the same. well. Many of them look the same because many of them come from the pan-Arabic idea mm-hmm. of 1916 when they said to the Brits and the Brits agreed. After this, there can be one pan-Arabic nation, and we will support you. And these were the colours they came up for this pan-Arabic nation. Of course, we've sold them down the river, along with the French, but the idea stuck. And so when the nation-states began, like Jordan, they took those pan-Arabic colours uh, as their own nation-state flag. And they also, a lot of them, commit the, um, the, the, the flag design no-no of having writing on the flag. Yeah, um, well, especially, you see, the Shahada, the, the, the Islamic profession of faith, uh, there is no God but um, God and Muhammad is his prophet, 
Well, it's a bit problematic in, let's say, a country like um, Iraq, which has that Shahada written on it, when there is a significant Christian minority in that country, and yet there's an Islamic writing. Saudi Arabia also has the Shahada, but of course that's 99.9% Islamic. And this is why the Lebanese flag has got a cedar tree on it, because the Lebanon is such a hodgepodge quilt of, of formerly Jews, not so much anymore, Druze, uh, Alawites, uh, Sunni, Shia, Christian, you name it. And if you put any, if, unless you put all the religious symbols on, which is going to look rather odd, you better not put any on. So they've got a cedar tree instead. And I said we were going to get back to ISIS, and one of the first acts they did, everybody will now be familiar, if anybody's seen the news in the last few years, will be familiar with their flag, yeah. that symbol of ISIS. There's a chapter in this book called uh, Flags of Fear, which looks at a lot of the flags and symbolism of Islamist militants. Yeah. Um, how do they use those symbols? ISIS, for example, um, go for a square flag, very unusual, a black flag, which was the it pre- even predates Islam as the war flag of the, Arab, of the Arabic tribes. But Muhammad was thought to fly a black flag. But the, the, the key thing about it is the writing on it. Again, it's the Shahada, but it's, it's, so, it's not done in calligraphy. It's done in rough and ready. And it says 6th century. It says, we are the boys. We're the original. Um, never mind all these other guys. You know, we, we're going to go back to our roots. And if that means beheading people and doing this, that and the other, it's because that's what God wants us to do and please join us. And it does appear to have attracted a certain amount of, of people. And um, well, then when you put their behaviour with their branding, it's a very scary flag and it's supposed to scare you. Elsewhere, if you look at the Al-Aqsa brigades um, in Palestine, they have a map of uh, Israel-Palestine, but there's no division anywhere. So they're actually saying this is one place, which is their aim. Um, they have crossed rifles on it and a grenade in it. You know, it says we are an armed, violent, revolutionary mm-hmm. group. And it would be easy at one level for them to redesign their flag and take the grenade and the guns away. But it would be pretty difficult because the, what would that say? That would then say we are no longer going to fight, and they're not prepared. And you know, and I'm not making a case for or against any of this. I'm just trying to explain the power and the language of flags. And it's also not particularly sixth century. It's an interesting contrast between those flags with the AK-47s on them and the ISIS flag with its, you know, its its demonstrations of purity. Yeah, that's the word. They're going for, we are the pure Islam, their version of it. And, you know, it has attracted several tens of thousands of people. Just to finish off then, the last chapter of this book is called uh, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And in, in this one, you look at flags that, you know, aren't necessarily connected to an ancient state, but groups, and you go from... The, the Jolly Roger fire the Olympic flag to the rainbow flag of gay liberation. There's also a flag. The one I want to talk about is... I'd never seen this flag before, the international flag of the planet Earth. Where does that come from? <sighs> um, it's a really good flag as well. I really like yeah, there was a, There was a competition to, you know... The, we're not, not the UN, because the UN, of course, the flag of, is the flag of 193 nation-states. It's not <laughs> the flag of um, 7.5 billion people. So there was a competition in Europe to design a flag, and um, this, this, this guy uh, from Scandinavia, I think, came up with it, and it's these interlocking circles which join us together. And it's, you know, it's, if you imbue it with the meaning that it, it represents every single one of us, it doesn't represent every single one of the tribes we're in, or the nation states, where it just simply represents every single one of us. I think there's a quite a, a beauty in that, but it's only when you know it, because actually it's just a flag with a bunch of rings interconnected on it. But it's, it's the idea, it's the idea which does speak volumes about oneness and unity and all the rest of it. So in that sense, it's quite a beautiful flag. And I think that's a good point for us to finish yeah. on as well. The positive note. Yeah, indeed, rather than finishing on ISIS. Yeah. Um, so I've been talking to Tim Marshall, and we talked about the prisoners of geography, and then we talked about worth dying for, the power and politics of flags, both of which are out now from Elliot and Thompson. Tim, thank you for thank coming you. in and sharing thank with you. us. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.